Namaste. I'm Reverend Wendy Craig Purcell here at the Unity Center in beautiful San Diego. Thank you so much for subscribing to this channel. Please make sure that you like the video you've just watched and consider making a contribution on our app or on our website. It's really easy to do. And thank you in advance for that support. It does make a difference. If you've just joined us, we are in week number three of taking a look at some of the key concepts in this book written by Frank Ostaseski. The name of the book is The Five Invitations. And when you think about an invitation, when you get an invitation, there's usually a happy feeling about it, right? It's something you're being invited to do something enjoyable, to go someplace or be with, with people that you want to be with. But you have to accept it, right, in order to get all the good stuff. You have to accept the invitation and you have to put yourself in. You have to participate. And in this book, in these five invitations, they are invitations that the author came to understand through the work he had been doing, sitting with literally thousands of people who were making their transition. He's the co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project in Northern California. And so as he would do his work as a hospice person and from his background in Zen, he listened and saw through that lens and came to these five ideas that he believes and he writes about are beautiful, powerful ways for us to live a better life. The first invitation you may recall was the invitation not to wait, not to wait. And last week was the invitation that we were to welcome everything and push nothing away. And how difficult really that one can be, especially when we're looking not just at our own individual lives, but as looking at the circumstances in the world. But the idea of welcoming everything and pushing nothing away is grounded in the importance of recognizing what is happening, acknowledging what is happening, and being with what is happening, so that in that consciousness, we're able to be much more open to how do we work to improve it, rather than shutting down and pulling away. And in this invitation, the third invitation, the idea is to bring our whole self to the experience, our whole self into our life. And if you think about it, we start off doing that, don't we? As when we were children, we did that naturally. We brought our whole self into whatever it was we were doing until somebody told us that there was something wrong with part of us, right? We just brought our whole self into whatever we were doing. As young children, we did dance like no one was watching and certainly like no one was judging. And we would sing like no one was watching or no one was judging. And we would, we would color and sometimes outside of the lines. We put our whole self into the experience, right? I see some of you, you're nodding your head. Yes, you remember that. You remember that. Well, what causes us? What causes us to hold back? What causes us to not bring our whole self in? I don't think there's any one answer, but I think there are several that probably come to your mind right away. Probably one of the experiences that has caused us as we were growing up to hold back and to not bring our whole self forward was the experience of criticism, the experience of judgment, 
maybe even the experience of being punished, maybe the experience of being told that somehow there was something really wrong with us, or maybe the experience of having brought our whole self into the picture and kind of being embarrassed after the fact because we kind of didn't do such a great job and we felt embarrassed as we experienced whatever may have happened. And so there are reasons, certainly, that we have become more guarded. And to the extent that we move through our lives guarded, to that extent we can't play full out, to that extent we can't really discover fully who we are And we can't really give that gift of who we really are if we are guarded, if we are holding ourselves back. Frank gives the illustration of imagining that we are a puzzle. Imagine that there is a three-dimensional, 1,000-piece or more puzzle of you. Can you get the picture? How many of you during the pandemic did some jigsaw puzzles? Right? Right? So some of you did. We did plenty of jigsaw puzzles during the the pandemic. But imagine yourself as this giant three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle, and you start putting it together. And maybe you start putting together with the easy pieces, you know, the obvious to recognize pieces, your eyes, your ears, your, your head, and so forth. He says, but then you start to discover some pieces that you just kind of don't like so much about yourself when you decide to just leave them out and not put them in. What happens? We don't have a complete picture, right? We don't have a complete picture. We decide, oh, well, I don't like that fear of mine or that habit of mine or this part of my life or this part of my body. I'll just leave that out so nobody will, so nobody will see that. But then they don't see all of us, right? We are multidimensional beings. We are not all one thing. We are many things. And I think it's true to say that all of us have gotten many, 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 many messages about the way we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to act and how we're supposed to look. And to the extent that we follow all of that that is not natural for us, we begin to get tinier and tinier and tinier, living in a smaller and smaller box. He writes of the idea that I think we can all relate to, that we all have a preference to look good, right? Who doesn't have a preference to look good? We all have a preference to look good. But what we have to realize is we are complicated. We are not all looking one way. We are multidimensional. This is the way he writes about it. It is not our experience, but rather the wisdom gained gained from our own suffering, vulnerability, and healing that enables us to be of real assistance to others. It is the exploration of our inner lives that facilitates us in forming an empathetic bridge from our experience to theirs. To be whole, we need to include accept and connect all parts of ourselves. Let me repeat that. To be whole, we need to include, accept, and connect all parts of ourselves. We need acceptance of our conflicting qualities and the seeming incongruity of our inner and outer worlds. 
Wholeness does not mean perfection. It means no part left out. I found those last two sentences to be really helpful in healing. Wholeness does not mean perfection. It means no part left out. It means that we look at all aspects of ourselves. We look at the light in us and we look at the shadow in us. Because the only way we can transcend the shadow or heal the shadow is if we are willing to look at it. But if it's a piece of the puzzle that we've put away and we're trying to hide, then we will never be able to bring it out to the light and to the healing. When he writes about the invitation to bring our whole self into the experience, he writes about the idea that we all have roles to play, right? Think of the many roles that you play right now. Kind of run through them in your mind. What are the roles that you play? I play the role of wife, of mother, of minister, of sister, of daughter. Those are just some of the ones that come to my mind. I'm sure you're, as I've asked you the question, for you to think of the roles. There are many roles that we play. And roles are neither good nor bad. Roles are functional. And the functionality of the roles that we play in our lives also gives stability and consistency to those around us. So when I am playing the role and being the role of mother, that function has certain aspects to it that build a foundation of consistency for those who look to me as mother. Same is true for minister. The functions are different, but there's a consistency. The roles are neither good nor bad. They serve a function and a purpose. In this chapter, when he writes about this idea of the importance of bringing our whole self into all of life's experiences, he shares a story of... Um, of being there for a, a dear friend of his who was dying of AIDS. And remember, Frank's background is as a hospice person. And so he's with his friend who is dying of AIDS at the near the end, and it's not a pleasant experience. His friend is losing all sense of himself, really, and all of his bodily functions. And Frank writes about being in the bathroom with his friend cleaning up the mess after his friend. And his friend is kind of slouched on the floor, and Frank is doing his role of hospice carer. And his friend looks up and says to him, you're trying too hard. And in that moment, Frank, Frank writes about the breakthrough that he realized he was showing up only in the role of hospice provider and doing the functions <clears throat> excuse me, that, <clears throat> that a hospice provider would do. But this was his dear friend. And the part that he was leaving out was his whole self, his self and role as a friend to this friend. And he writes in such a tender way describing how it was a breakthrough experience that his friend really needed and wanted not just Frank the hospice person, but the whole person. Does that make sense? And it harkens back to the quote of his that I read to you a few moments ago, that it's when we can bring our whole self into an experience that we build this empathetic bridge with one another. That wholeness is not about being perfect. It's about not leaving any part of who and what we really are out of the picture. 
Our roles change, though, over, over our lifespan, don't they? Think about the roles that you played when you were younger. Our initial roles in early adulthood, we're often looking forward and outward. What we're wanting to build in our lives, maybe starting a career or a business or education or, or starting our families, looking very much forward and, and outward, and rightfully so. But as the years pass and life circumstances change, our roles change too. And for many of us, as we get toward the more senior years of our lives, and some of those functional roles in our lives change, we begin to look differently, and rightfully so. We tend to begin to look more inward, and backward, not really with regret, but with reflection, carrying forward the things that we have learned and looking deeply within ourselves. Life requires us to adapt, and that means that our roles change. The parent, parents, the child. But oftentimes, as the years roll by, that role changes. I'm in that role to some, a changing of that role to some extent right now. I have adult children, John and I have adult children, and we have my wonderful mother, who's 87, who lives most of the year with us, and now part of my role, and mom, it's not that you need me completely, but part of my role as child is helping to parent in some ways, whether it's parenting, how do you get to your Medicare.gov on your iPad when you're 87 and you can't see the size of the, the text? It's how do you sit in a doctor's office and understand as you're getting older the things that the doctor is saying to you. Our roles change. If we hold any role too tightly, we're going to have problems. If we hold any role too tightly, we may prefer certain roles that we've had, but if we hold any role too tightly, we will find ourselves experiencing unnecessary suffering. Think about the challenge, what for, some, for many people actually, can be the challenge of retirement years. It's not for many people exactly what they thought it was going to be. If they've identified so closely with their role as provider, or so closely with their professional role, or the function that they had when they were in their, their careers and their professional lives, when that is no longer there, unless they have very much thoughtfully considered who do they want to be and what functions and roles do they want to step into after that, there can be a real sense of emptiness. And so this idea of our roles changing means that we get the functionality of those and that we are willing to continue to grow and evolve, bringing our whole self, our new self, into whatever experience we are having. He writes also about what happens oftentimes is if we identify this with this quality of being a nurturer and a caregiver, that we can get stuck there. How many of you relate to the idea of being a nurturer or a caregiver? That's a lot of you in this room. I was taken by 
some of the wording he was using when he was talking about bringing your whole self into all experiences, but also monitoring and being aware of, are you functioning in the capacity of caregiver and fixer? All right? A caregiver and fixer. He says, fixing and helping can be draining. Any of you relate to that? Nod your head if you... Fix... What about all that we experienced during this pandemic? The things we had to fix, the ways we had to help, the changes that we had had to make. Fixing and helping can be draining. It can cause us to burn out over time. And here was a different way of looking at it that he shared in the book that I found very helpful, and maybe you will as well. He was referencing the work of Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen and her wisdom on the different ways that we can be involved in making a difference in the world. This is what she wrote. Helping, fixing, and serving represent three different ways of seeing life. Let me repeat that. Helping, fixing, and serving represent three different ways of seeing life. When you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. When you serve, you see life as whole. Fixing and helping may be the work of the ego and service the work of the soul. Isn't that beautiful? When you help, you see life as weak. Think about that. Think about the last time you helped someone. The help was probably very much appreciated, but, but just kind of reflect on that. Were you seeing something in that person or that situation as broken? When you fix, were you seeing someone or something as broken? I think it's a framework to consider and to consider the nuance and the difference of when we are engaged in trying to be there for another, can we grow into being there in the capacity of serving? in the capacity of speaking to the highest and best in them, in the capacity of not seeing them as broken, and in the capacity of not seeing them as, as weak. I think that shift in consciousness can make a huge difference in how our assistance is received by the other, but also in what it takes from inside of us, that when we can be in the role of serving, that that's coming from the soul. He writes, try being with another sometime without trying to fix or analyze. Just listen generously as if they have all the resources they need inside them. Often receptive silence heals more than all well-meaning words. I took some of that to heart. And one of the last ideas that he brings into this idea of bringing our whole self into the picture, kind of circles back to the puzzle and the missing pieces, right? Those parts of ourselves that we kind of say, we, we, we don't want anybody to see them, but we don't look at them either, and therefore we can't heal them and, and move beyond them. He talks about the inner critic that we all have inside of us, right? You know that inner critic, right? It, it may sound like somebody in your family, in your head sometimes, right? That, that inner critic, in the beginning of the chapter, he writes a quote from Peggy O'Mara, the way we talk to our children becomes their inner voice. 
way we talk to our children becomes their inner voice. No matter how hard we try, we can't please our inner critic. Have you noticed that? You can quiet it, but you can never satisfy the inner critic. He says, there's no fooling it. The critic knows your every move, every trick, every bit of your past. It has been right there with you throughout your life. You shower with it, take it to work. It compares, praises, devalues, diminishes, invalidates, blames, approves, condemns, and attacks your appearance, job performance, the way you conduct your relationships, your friends, your health, your diet, your hopes and dreams, your thoughts and your spiritual development. Pick something anything as it is all interchangeable. Let's face it in the critic's eyes, nothing you ever do is good enough. Am I the only one that relates to that? Right? Yeah, this is his words, not mine, right? He suggests, and I think he's right, that, you know, we're never going to please that inner critic, but we can learn to tame it. We can learn to tame it. And we learn to tame, tame it by moving away from judgment and moving more into discernment. And I think that the more we can learn to tame the inner critic, the more we will be willing to be our vulnerable, authentic selves and bring our whole selves into our relationships, into our world, into our work. And to the extent we do that, we're going to be so much better off and we'll have so much more of value to share and to give with others. So we tame that inner critic, not by judging it, not try, trying to you know, force it, but by moving into, <clears throat> excuse me, I got too emotional in that part, <laughs> moving into discernment, moving into discernment. When we bring, let me take a sip of water. <clears throat> can tell I relate to this inner critic. Too much so. I think my inner critic speaks in more than one language, too. When we bring our whole self forward, we include all parts of us. We include our brokenness. We include our imperfections. We include, but we begin to tame our inner critic. And we know that to the extent that we are willing to bring our whole self, that we, to the extent we are willing to be our authentic selves, to that extent we can really give a meaningful gift to the other. You know, we say that in the Unity Center, our mission is transforming lives and healing our world with love. And what I know to be true is that every time we grow individually, Every time you grow individually, every time you become more of your unique, precious, and beautiful self, every time you do that, no matter what it took inside of you to make that improvement, you help to heal the world. That may sound lofty, but it's really true because we do the healing work one person at a time, one conversation at a time. When you are more fully you, sharing from all that you are, not just one role, but all that you are, you, by virtue of doing that, are giving permission by example to others to do the same as well. And I think it is in these kinds of efforts, in these kinds of changes that we make individually, that we help to make 
the world a safer place, to make the world a more just place. When we practice love for ourselves, we will find it easier to practice love for the other. When we practice love for the other, we will find it easier to practice love for ourselves. So I want to go back as I close this and ask you to reflect on the three-dimensional puzzle that Frank talked about, imagining yourself as this three-dimensional puzzle. Whatever pieces you were inclined to want to just kind of hide behind you, identify what those are, just for, your, for yourself. Identify what those are. And begin to wrap whatever those are with a sense of love and kindness, with a sense of gentleness. There's a reason for whatever pain we have experienced, whatever parts of ourselves we're embarrassed by or we wish were different, there's a reason we got that way. And the reason is usually some sort of trauma or some sort of hurt that we have not yet acknowledged and healed from. So at least bring it out. At least look at it for your eyes only. And if you pray or meditate, bring it to light. Surround it with light. So he writes, are there pieces of the puzzle missing, parts of yourself you've disowned? It's time to tame the inner critic by moving from judgment to discernment by bringing your whole and holy self forward. By bringing your whole and holy self forward. Namaste.